Welcome, everybody, once again to Writers and Fighters, a podcast. I'm your host, AJ Ortega. And every week I interview someone in the writing world or someone in the fighting world. On today's episode, I interview Rocio Franco, an emerging poet from Chicago. We cover a lot of stuff, and she was a real pleasure to talk to. We talked about her poetry, of course, and we even get to hear her read one of her poems. She shares a bit about being a cancer survivor and navigating that in her writing. And she tells us about her Brazilian jiu-jitsu training. She's a badass writer and a real fighter on multiple levels. So definitely stay tuned for that interview. UFC 263 was on over the weekend, but I only want to talk about one match. In the co-main event, which stole the show, Brandon Moreno submitted Davison Figueiredo in the third round. And his story is great. Brandon Moreno's story is great. He was cut from the UFC in 2018 and came back after fighting an LFA, Legacy Fighting Alliance, and ended up earning his way back into the company, back into the UFC, and had a series of impressive matches leading him to this championship match. And this is the second time that they've fought. The first time ended in a draw. So in the fight, Moreno had Figueiredo in trouble several times. Really good scrambling on Moreno's part, sick jab all night. But the big story is what happened after his win and what does this mean? Well, Moreno is the first Mexican UFC champion. Mexico is the most decorated country when it comes to the sport of boxing, but it's not the same in mixed martial arts. Cain Velasquez, for example, was a champion in the UFC, and he's Mexican-American. He's Chicano from California. And interestingly, six years ago to the day was when Cain Velasquez fought in Mexico City and got obliterated by Fabricio Verdum because of the elevation in DFE. So... Uh, In any case, uh, Brandon Moreno, though, is from Tijuana. He is born and raised in Mexico. And so he wins this third round after he jabbed Figueiredo and knocked him down and takes his back and sinks in a rear naked choke. But he was dominating in all the scrambles. He was dominating striking-wise. And I can't help but think that the weight cut affected Figueiredo. and And he didn't make any excuses when he lost, which I think is good. Again, tremendous athlete, but I don't see him at 125 much longer. That weight cut was a little bit much, so I think I see him at 135 rather than seeking a trilogy with Moreno. And so Moreno wins by rear naked choke. And the post-fight interview with Moreno was great. He speaks English near fluently, but addresses the crowd in Spanish several times. And he's, he's going back and forth. He's code-switching. And it was just awesome. It was beautiful. He's real passionate, and he's screaming, screaming, Viva Mexico, and there's tons of Mexican fans in the crowd because they're in Arizona. And so there's these Mexican fans in the crowd, or maybe just fight fans in general, holding up the tricolor Mexican flag. And so I'm including a link to that video of the post-fight interview just so you can see, even if you're not a fight fan because it doesn't include the fight, it just includes after the fight. It really is interesting and maybe kind of can exemplify like, well, why do you get excited about this stuff? Why do you care? Well, that was a real moment. And yeah, it, it was just really weirdly electric to see that. So shout out to Brandon 
the assassin baby Moreno. Uh, there were other fights on, again, on the card, but that was the one that moved me emotionally. And I rewatched it this morning, and it was just as badass as it was last night. Speaking of badass, it's about time for that interview. So here's Rocio Franco, Latinx poet from Chicago. It was a good talk, so I hope you enjoy. All right, I am sitting here on Zoom with... Rocio Franco calling in from Chicago, Illinois. Is that right? Yeah, Chicago. Great, great. So maybe tell the audience a little bit about who you are and why are you on this podcast? Well, my name is Rocio Franco and I'm a poet, activist, and healthcare worker. I'm on here because I also practice Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and I write poems. So, so yeah. Um, <laughs> right up I think our alley. I'm, yeah. I came upon you on Instagram. It was a name, first of all. What's your name on Instagram? <laughs> Chiola Chingona. Yeah, exactly. And so I saw, I was like, oh, let me see what she's about. And I clicked on it and I was like, oh, great, a poet. Oh, and wow, she's in a gi. What? And oh, I was like, oh, she does jujitsu as well. Very cool. And so I reached <laughs> out to you. So uh, thanks again for, for coming on. Maybe explain what the word Chingona means to our maybe non-Spanish speakers that are listening? I started calling myself Chingona like when I was diagnosed with cancer and I felt like it was just kind of something to like hold on to in terms of strength. So to me, a Chingona is a woman that like doesn't back down from anything. A woman that stares down like death like I did, gets back up after being knocked down and doesn't set limitations on herself. And if you were to translate chingona into English, I think the closest word would be badass. Right, exactly. It's badass, mm. but it's specifically for mm. women. Again, it's tough chicks, yeah. badass mm-hmm. chicks, that kind of mm-hmm. personality and attitude, really. And I like that you said that you started calling yourself chingona after you went through your cancer diagnoses and stuff like this. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good reason to be a badass because that's, uh, yeah, I can't imagine imagine mm-hmm. and so when did you first get into writing so you're a poet when did you first get into writing what like books were around or or when did you latch on to literature in some regard you know I think it all started when I was a kid I would take about seven to ten books out at a time from the library and like read them in a couple weeks and then I started writing short stories but then I stopped because my childhood was kind of challenging I grew up in a home with no support. And so I spent my time just trying to survive until I was able to leave. And so when I finally did leave home, life happened. And I just started working full time trying to navigate independence and cope with depression and trauma. Sure. But I I returned to writing at the beginning of 2019. Um, I was having a really hard time coping with cancer survival. I couldn't sleep. I was anxious, depressed. I was traumatized from having cancer, but I was worried it would come back. So I started coping with all that by drinking. Okay. Um, and I was rapidly self-destructing. And I finally said, I need to stop. So I started going to therapy regularly and started to reevaluate, reevaluate everything in my life, including the people that I was surrounding myself with. And even though I was in therapy and taking care of myself better, I still had a lot of despair. So I just started to write. I just started to write. I think a lot of us, and when I say us, I mean writers, that Mm. uh, it's a good outlet for stuff like trauma. 
It's a good mm-hmm. outlet for stuff like grief and recovering from something as devastating like cancer and the fear of it coming back and all these traumas and losses and and things like that. Uh, I think we're we're lucky in a certain regard because we have this outlet of writing. You know, it's not uncommon. I think everybody in some aspect, all the writers I bring on, that that we're coming from a similar place there the tough stuff makes some for some good writing unfortunately mm-hmm. yeah writing has given me a sense of purpose so I mean you know life I still have difficulties now but I don't immediately think I'm gonna drink I immediately think I'm gonna write about it you know and, and you I go. feel like I have a sense of purpose now where I don't need to like be drinking to feel numb or to think about it I could be writing and write what I feel and so yeah it's been really like you said it's been a really good outlet for me no, yeah, that makes sense. You know, I, I, I get that with the drinking thing, too. I go up and down with that kind of stuff myself. And so, again, whenever I, I'm kind of overdoing it, I recognize, well, what emotions are you trying to push down, dude? And what are you running from? And then you got to get in front of the notepad or get in front of the computer mm-hmm. or something like that. When you first start writing, you do specifically poetry, from what I can see. Do you write mm-hmm. in other genres, or are you specifically into poems? I'm specifically into poems now. Um, I feel that's like a strength right now. I'm trying to go develop some skills in creative nonfiction essay writing, sure. uh, which I, I find a little bit intimidating because it's a lot more straightforward, okay. um, less figurative language, um, a lot more structured. And mm-hmm. so I'm just, I like to challenge myself. Uh-huh. And so I'm 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 trying to go into that direction too. Poetry is always going to be a priority, but I'm trying to branch out into different writing styles. Yeah, I think the creative nonfiction thing, memoir, personal essay, these kinds of things are good for these very up close and personal hard things that you know you can also fictionalize. You can put it in poetry, things like this, but maybe to tell it a, bit, a little bit more straight, right? To tell it straight, yeah. it, it is is scary at times. I, I, I think in that regard, in terms of it being so close, so personal, so intimate, the personal essay is a tough one, but it's one of my favorites lately. It's one of my favorite genres that I kind of grew into. So I think that's great. And I also think that your social activism also lends itself to that kind of a writerly voice too. Like, and mm-hmm. so just the thing that down the road, I could totally see some, you know, like social justice essays coming out of your voice as well. That's definitely something to explore. For sure. I know when we were scheduling this, uh, we were making sure we scheduled after a, a workshop. Tell me about, about the, the workshop you're taking. So there's this writing organization called uh, Roots, Wounds, Words, and it is based out of New York. And this woman, Nicole Lashawan uh, Jr., um, started the organization. She was a lawyer. She didn't like it. So she said, I'm going to start writing. Had no background in writing, but just started writing. So she started this organization to amplify BIPOC voices. Good. And so I started, uh, I took some workshops, individual workshops with her at the beginning of the year. And then she brought up this program that is funded through grants where it's a 12 week intensive and she brought it up and that kind of piqued my interest. She goes, just keep, you know, I'll, I'll email everybody and see who's interested. And so I kept that on my radar. And finally, she announced that registration was opening up and that this year 
she it wasn't first come first serve you actually had to apply for it okay um so i applied i was offered only 12 places were given but she offered me a, a spot to audit the course which means i get everything except uh compensated for it which to me it's it's fine because sure. this kind of intensive and this kind of instruction i for free you know it's it's you know i don't have to pay anything right so to me it's just as valuable you know even if i don't get compensated so and then she invited me recently outside of this program i'm gonna do a reading with her because she does this reading called counterpult and it's like a storytelling like hour and she has several writers come on and like she invited me that outside of like the workshop that we're doing that i'm doing with her no very cool looks like a Really cool lineup, and again, a, a truly, you know, diverse mm-hmm. lineup. In that they're mm-hmm. all BIPOC writers and storytellers, you know, Black, Indigenous, mm-hmm. and people of color. And so that's mm-hmm. a that's a, a really good space for you to be in, and, and really cool, really cool opportunity. Again, even if it's a you know free tuition for a twelve week course, hell yeah, take it. Hell yeah, yeah, that's a great, sure. great opportunity. So jump mm-hmm. on that. You brought up the cancer diagnosis, and I was looking at your poems in. Asento's review, and then the recent one that you have in exposition review, and that most recent one is a, again, it speaks to your experience with cancer. I was very conflicted when I started writing. I didn't know if I wanted to focus any of my writing on cancer, just because I didn't think I could find the language for it like the proper language to convey the pain and the process and, you know, the fight and everything. Right. And I also didn't want to romanticize, you know, being sick and being in pain. And I don't know, I was just uh, things that were going through no, my I head. Yeah. And so as I started, and I also didn't want to be known as the poet that survived cancer. Sure. But then I start as I continued to write and I wrote, I, I found the language and I continue and I continue to do so now. And I just, I feel comfortable writing about it. And I feel comfortable um, reading poems about my cancer diagnosis and workshop when I do. So yeah, it was, it wasn't something that I really wanted to do at the beginning. Cause I also feel like there was more sites to me than just the cancer, but it's definitely that the exposition review was definitely something different that I've had in the previous other ap- publications that I've had. Right. Yeah. And I think that is the, again, the trick you have to figure out when you are going to write about something, again, something like cancer, that Mm -hmm. how do you do this in a way that conveys something that's different about cancer, right? Mm -hmm. There there is the writing that exists there. We do see it in television and film and, and everything. And so how do we approach that? And I think on top of the language that you've nailed, I think, in that poem, but also the form, right? Poetry lends itself to this form. And again, this first stanza is really cool because you're talking about the esophagus and it's this long, very skinny mm-hmm. stanza. And so it's just, yeah, yeah. I, I think you that, I think you, you did some new things there. Yeah, that's it's fun. I think I love experimenting with different forms. I think it's fun. And I just thought, like you said, it going down and like felt like I was trying to... Uh, uh, write it in, in a form of an esophagus, you know? Sure. And so, yeah, I, I had, uh, I have fun with form on the paper and also have fun. 
Uh, recently, I tr I've been writing longer poems because I've been doing a lot of reading. So I've been having a lot of fun doing longer pieces too, like cool. kind of out of spoken word. So yeah, I like to experiment and just keep an open, open mind when I write. Yeah, sure. Great, great. And mm -hmm. the title of that one in Exposition Review is A Six-Month Follow-Up Visit Opens My Mouth in Anguish. And so would you be willing to read that? I could read it. I think that'd Let be great just, for our audience. Oh, Mm -hmm. Let me open it up in my of course. Google Doc. All right. So this is a six-month follow-up visit opens my mouth in anguish. My full breath caught in my esophagus attempts to squeeze past needle passage narrowed by the choking of inflamed glands. The oncologist mimes about toxins mutating cells, in turn muting the recoiled air confined in my chest his muffled motions show me how a villain dwells inside a body. That's great. Again, the word choice there at the end. Villain, I think, is, the, again, just the right word. That second to last line. How a villain dwells inside a body. I've never heard cancer described that way. I love it. I don't know. I, it was. It, it took me a while to get to that place. Kind of to. I do that in a lot of my poetry with cancer. I kind of describe it as an entity, like as something, like as a as I personify it sure. a lot in 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 my writing with cancer. No, again, because if it is this again, when you say fighting mm -hmm. cancer, and we'll get mm -hmm. to the BJJ stuff in a moment, but fighting <laughs> like it's a duel. It's you and yeah. villain means there's a hero and you came out on top. So mm -hmm. fuck the villain in the yeah. story, right? Yeah, absolutely. Fuck cancer. <laughs> Amen. Uh, very cool. Thank you for reading that for our audience. It's a great one. And there's going to be a link in the show notes, y'all. Um, mm -hmm. All right. And so how did that, so clearly that affected, the diagnosis affected your writing content. There it is. But mm -hmm. did it also affect maybe your writing process? Yes, it does. I think I approach writing. Um, I think if I would have approached writing before my diagnosis or even like a few years ago, uh, if I didn't have cancer, it wouldn't have been the same as how I approach writing. Now I, I feel like I let go of a lot of fear sure. when I write and I approach things, I try to approach things with a lot of courage, um, especially opportunities that come up for writers conferences and publications. Cause I didn't complete, a bachelor's degree. And of course, I, since I didn't do that, I couldn't move on to an MFA program. So I have the courage to apply for those things. I don't feel intimidated because what kind of, what do I have to lose? Right. Mm -hmm. It's just writing. And if I keep writing, I'm just going to get better. It's just consistency is key. It's letting go of the fear. It's letting go of the intimidation and throwing your head in the ring for opportunities. Cause you never know, you know, that it might work out for you. And it, and, to be honest, it's worked out really well for me so far. Yeah, I think that's the right move. Keep developing your writing and then keep throwing mm -hmm. your hat in the ring. And if the right opportunity comes up, then you jump on it. Mm -hmm. But I say, mm -hmm. you know, be picky, really. And the MFA mm -hmm. programs, like, 
you know, like just go online and get all the syllabi, you know, and like, they go, and again, <laughs> you started with like utilizing that library when you were a kid. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I tell people, I'm like, yeah, you can go the MFA route like I did and look at that student loan bill every, every month. And, or, you know, or you can, um, <laughs> I was like, oh, I'll, I'll tell you what books to read. Like, just like they're all at the library, you know, <laughs> um, and stuff like that. And uh, but again, they're they buy you writing time, you know. But then yeah. you can also, you know, if you get a couple of these writing workshops or or, or a, a mm-hmm. fellowship or residency for this and that, like that's another way to do it too. And I see people yeah. doing it that way, and it isn't just that MFA path anymore. So I think you just cover all your bases, and it's awesome. I, I think at this point I'm 41. I don't want student loans, or so I'm just going right. to keep going the route that I'm going and applying for um, writers conferences. Last year I did Frost Conference on poetry. Great. I was ple- I, That was I was surprised because I had only been writing. I had only been workshopping for a few months when I got accepted for that, so I was really excited. And then I got accepted for a fellowship through dream yard for like radical uh poetry style poetry yeah. this june and then the big one this summer is bona i got accepted to bona which i'm gonna do in july there you go so yeah i'm just i'm just uh, any opportunity that comes up i try to apply for and i also pay attention a lot to the poets that i admire and the resources that they give so i pay a lot of attention to that too if they recommend a book i'll buy the book and of course, I'll read their books. And so I just try to keep my mind open and like observe everything and like pay attention to every single thing. Yeah, that's one very cool thing with like uh, social media and uh, mm-hmm. online journals. Like maybe 10, 15 years ago, I, I was like, no, online journals, I don't know about that. We should be, you know, things should be printed and put on bookshelves and things like that. Now it's like I, I like getting published in online journals and, it, and, and finding mm-hmm. writers through, through Twitter and Instagram mm-hmm. and stuff like this, people like yourself. And you, get, you can get your eyes on all sorts of writers and they share really cool stuff. And, and it's a really, really interesting, cool, cool thing. Speaking of that, I saw your poems in Acentos Review also uh, mm-hmm. that came out end of last year, December 2020. Really cool poem. I was just rereading it again this morning. It's one called A Saturday Afternoon in Our Urban Landscape. Mm-hmm. which I really admire because I write about working class and poverty class folks. Like that's the only thing I find interesting and stuff, at least <laughs> the characters that, that, that come out mm-hmm. the scene, scenery and setting and things like this. Tell me a little bit about what you're trying to capture in that poem. And that's going to be also in the show notes as well. Y'all. You know, that poem I wrote and I, it was, I drafted that poem in the Frost place conference on poetry. Um, it was so cool. You know, I'm so new to these um, kind of venues and kind of conferences. So everything was just so exciting for me. So one of the entry point, one of the workshops that we did was getting to a poem by drawing. Great. And so there's this poet uh, named Oliver Baez Berendorf, and he led us through like a workshop where we started to draw stuff in landscape, whatever we thought landscape was. And so when he did that, I just, I went from there and I remember, I don't know why that memory I've been living, I've been with my husband for over 27 years, we're high school sweethearts and like the people that first showed me love were his family. Great. And so I remember when they said landscape, I just immediately thought of those moments when we were in the back, you know, barbecuing and there's no grass, it's like dirt, you know, barbecuing Mm -hmm. on top of a garbage can and stuff like that. And I just thought, 
you know, those unconventional urban landscapes do have a lot of beauty because you have family and you're connecting and you're together. And, you know, so that's where that idea came from for that poem. Yeah, you say the word beauty and, you know, we're always trying to capture, capture something beautiful. And it. it's like maybe we overuse that word. But that's immediately what I thought when I finished reading that poem, because mm-hmm. it's this thing that to me is familiar and that it is it is filled with love, even if the grass is dead. And it's a small backyard with concrete mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and we're barbecuing on that rusty garbage can sitting on milk crates and things mm-hmm. like this. I was like, that is to me, I, I love that. That to me, that's life. I, that, that's the good shit, you know, just hanging around a, a, a little fire and BSing in the backyard. Like that's that's life, you know, and and you really capture that simplicity that poverty brings. I just quoted you there, quote, mm-hmm. simplicity that poverty brings. And that that's, uh, you know, like we can seek all these kinds of things, but that's uh, something that made an impression on you. And yeah, at them. Mm-hmm. and you captured that, and I, and I and I dig it. I have those those same moments. It's very cool. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of poets that I listen to or like that I follow. They talk about like trauma porn, you know, like sure. people, you know, uh, writing for the white gaze and stuff like that. And I think a lot like what I like. There's this there's this poet of Eve Ewing that was on the Versus podcast recently that said writing uh, desire-based narratives versus damage-based narratives. And that really like resonated with me. And I think that even though, yes, we didn't have a lot and, you know, they're, you know, we're poor and don't have a lot, but there's joy in it, you know? Yeah. And so it's like bringing that joy out of an experience instead of making it something like traumatic or negative or something like that. Agreed. Yeah. I think you did a good job of celebrating that simplicity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Rather than putting that magnifying glass and oh look at how poor we are, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So why train in BJJ? My husband's been train. I think has been training three three or four years more than I have. He's a blue belt now with like three stripes, and so I was very like he immediately fell in love with it. So before I got diagnosed, he had been training for three or four years. And he would come home with like bruises and come home kind of beat up. And I would say what? And he would be like over the moon and like super happy. Yeah, and, like, great workout. Just, <laughs> yeah, great workout. I was like, you have bruises like all over, scratches on your face. So I didn't completely understand it. But I was kind of fascinated by that joy that he would come home with after like getting like, you know, beat up. And it wasn't like, you know, anything like in a bad way. It's just part of the sparring, right? Mm-hmm. And so... When I was in my last um, chemo session, I sat there and I i don't know, I just felt like now that if I get through this, I need to take more risks in life, you know, like positive risks, you know, and do something that I normally wouldn't have done that would be intimidated and scary. And so I told Rolando, I said, if I make it through this and I make it to remission, I am going to train like you do. I'm going to try it. And so that's what I did. And so I started training. I remember the exact date, December 1st, 2017. It was three months after I was told I was in remission. Great. And it's just been, it's been very rewarding. It's also been, I think it's also like, it's been helpful in the physical recovery. It's been helpful and uh, with depression as well. Although I've had moments where I felt like I might quit because it's very hard. 
You know, right, it's right. very hard to do. And I wasn't used to things coming so hard for me. It's not like I've done a lot of things, but I think like in terms of the things that I did, it wasn't hard to grasp. And this was extremely hard to grasp. And I think up until a year ago, because it's going to be four years this December, up until a year ago, I was struggling still with even basic moves. Right. And so I, I would feel discouraged. You know, I would feel sometimes humiliated, sure. you know, and no one was making me feel that way. It's just your own insecurities because right. my, my coaches are really good. They don't, they don't, they're really good and very supportive. So it's not like they were making you feel that way. It's just something that I felt. And I competed like four times and I lost most of my matches and that mm -hmm. felt kind of humiliating, but it just feels like at that point, you know, if you've been through all that, you've done this challenging thing and you stuck with it. I think it just really goes well with my writing too. It's given me a lot of confidence to pursue the writing in that way. And it's given me a lot of confidence to take risks with the writing because I've taken risks with jujitsu. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions is that has it made you a better writer? I like to ask people weird questions that way uh, because I, I find that lots of non-writing things help me become a better writer. Boxing, training, taking apart a car engine or something like this. You know, there, there's <laughs> weird things that you can learn from and then apply certain skills to writing. Then you also mentioned the, the struggle of learning something new. And so you're, you're, a, you're still a white belt. Yeah, I have two stripes on my white belt. Good. It's been like two years since I've been promoted, mm -hmm. but I haven't been at the gym consistently because of COVID-19, but I've been training at home uh, two times a week for the since the pandemics happened. I used to train like two times a week before. Yeah. Um, I had to take a little bit. I was still training, but I couldn't train hard because I had a... Uh, a year after remission, I they found a blood clot in my chest. Okay. And so I had to go on blood thinners for sure. six months. So that kind of took away a little bit of uh, being able to train hard or spar or anything. Of course. And then, um, then the pandemic happened and I didn't really go to the gym, but I'm still training here. And um, I feel like I've seen my progression. You know, like a lot of people want to say my jujitsu, like and, yeah, my jujitsu is always going to, I'm always going to be working towards getting better at jujitsu, but I see my progression from even a year ago. My husband, I trained with my husband and my husband sees it too. So no. yeah, to me, it's more like, I don't really care at before. I'm not going to be honest before, like the promotions always matter, like at some point, but right now it feels good because I'm not really focused on that. I'm just excited that I'm I like, I grasp concepts now better than I used to. Yeah. That consistency that you were talking about at the beginning, that, yeah, that just having consistency and not getting out of practice is good. And it's good to be a white belt in anything. Like, again, that mm -hmm. meaning novice, meaning new at it, and, and lots of stuff not being natural to us. And, yeah, I think that's some of the, the, the best. If we don't put ourselves in those uncomfortable positions or challenge ourselves uh, or throw in the towel and give up on it, like, yeah, I think that that's a good skill to transfer into writing. Because again, mm -hmm. part of part of writing is is uh, there's always new stuff to learn. Like you can't you can't get a black belt in writing. I think you know, like you can get pretty close, but uh. yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. You know, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is like highly technical martial art. You know, it has countless techniques. Sure. You know, you never stop learning. But each technique is not one size fits all. You got to learn the mechanics of each move and also learning how to execute it according to your body type. Right. And I feel like poetry is similar. There are like many entry points, many forms, and you also never stop learning with poetry. 
um, you learn the mechanics of writing a poem, but it's also important to like find your own unique voice, finding my own unique unique voice amongst also learning the mechanics of writing the forms. Yeah, definitely. And poetry can get infinitely complex, you know, just like jujitsu going mm-hmm. up and up and like you can do your very basic roles and then get into very complex kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. What do you remember from early jujitsu training, like the first day, first week, like the first couple sessions, anything that stuck out like you're, when you're like, okay, I got this idea, but then like, okay, then you're on the mat. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, um, my first class was in ladies class with um, Catherine Cario. She's Kat, Kat Cario. She's a brown belt. And she was at, at that time, she was leading the women's program. And so I had reached out because I had still my chemo port in. Okay. And so we were kind of chatted about training safely with the chemo port. And so she was really warm and welcoming. And I had my first class with her and it was just her, uh, the both of us. No one else had showed up that day. It okay. was like winter. So it was just the both of us. And I just felt very comfortable with her. And I felt like she had this very welcoming spirit. But then... um I kept going, but I felt very intimidated, honestly, for the first like year, I think like I, I would get anxious before class. Um, I left class one day. I lied and told them that I was sick, that I didn't feel well, but it was the anxiety. And that's never happened to me. I've never left somewhere because of anxiety and jujitsu did that to me. I left class because of the anxiety. And, you know, I think a, a lot of it was, my insecurity about learning something new, but a lot of it too was my body type. I'm okay. the biggest girl there. Right. And no one was making me feel like I didn't belong there, but it was just like, I was the biggest girl there. And I just, it, I felt out of place and I felt maybe I didn't belong there. Right. But I remember Kat Cario telling me, and this was unsolicited. She told me one time in a text, she goes, Rocio, you know that you belong here, right? And that really like, great. I always appreciate that from her. You know, she didn't have to tell me that, but she told me that. And that gave me a lot of comfort and a lot of encouragement to keep going. And plus, my husband, uh, it it helps that my husband, we train at both the same school and his encouragement and being able to talk to him about my fears and and him understanding it and stuff like that. So I have a lot to credit Kat, but I also have a lot to credit my husband, too, for being able to, like, tell him how I feel and him trying to like encourage me to keep going and just it's part of jujitsu it's just it's jujitsu yeah no that's great yeah having having that support in and out of the uh, mm-hmm. in and out of the gym that's very cool mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you do a little bit of fighting in VJJ you certainly fought cancer and you fight for social justice are these all kind of intertwined for you this idea of fighting like, even I was thinking about the other poem in Acentos, the title is La Lucha es Constante. Mm-hmm. La Lucha. Lucha meaning fight or wrestle, mm-hmm. but struggle is a better translation mm-hmm. in, that, in that title. So mm-hmm. the struggle that we have in BJJ on the mat, or the struggle to f- overcome cancer and the struggle for social justice, are these all intertwined? I think so. Yeah. I think it's like something that it's never stops, right? Like in jujitsu, you never stop learning. You never, the struggle never stops, even though you feel like you've progressed. It's still a struggle sometimes to get on the mats for whatever reason. 
of course with social justice it's like it could be sold this heartening right sure. like especially now and i that you just have to say yeah i'm gonna cry today and i'm gonna be discouraged today and disillusioned today but i'm gonna get back up because the fight is it's all about it ha- it's constant it, and and you just have to keep back up and fighting for a better world and poetry too i think with poetry and social justice i feel like um besides the personal benefits of personal expression, I just think like personally, and I've heard other poets too that believe this, it's like my responsibility to improve my craft in service of my community. Um, I was in a workshop recently and the workshop leader, the poet said that he, he thinks that everything's political, including love. And I actually agree with that. And because the political system, you know, directly impacts our communities, you know, that we live in and, and move in um, through various like socioeconomic me- mechanisms. And so as writers and as artists, it's our responsibility to center our communities. And, you know, I want to show in my work, in my writing that we could heal and we could expose the power structures that try to exploit, you know, our communities and like reclaim our, our collective power through artistic expression. No, I think that's great. I think you you hit all these major points about that struggle never ending in all these different avenues. And so I think that's great. And again, thanks for uh, fighting. Thanks for fighting because I know that it comes with a lot of fatigue too, right? That battle <laughs> yeah. fatigue in the social justice mm-hmm. game, it is totally uh, draining at times and has been uh, lately. So we're in that yeah, fight with absolutely. you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. So what do you got going on in the future, future projects? I know you got the reading coming up with Counterpult, uh, which we'll make mm-hmm. sure to plug and link everybody to. Anything else that you got coming up? I'm going to have a public reading through the DreamYard conference. Um, I'll be posting that on my social media. And then I have on the 27th the reading with Counterpult, and I'm just doing Bona in July, which I'm excited about. And... I'm going to have my penning my pieces performance. So yeah, there's a lot of things keeping me busy this summer. I'm excited and looking forward to, um, in September, I, I believe in, and I had two poems that were accepted in an immigration anthology. So I believe that's going to come out in September and I'll be doing a reading to support that too. So there's a lot of things that I'm trying to work on. Keep consistent, right? The same with BJJ and with writing, right? You can't, you're going to get better if you keep showing up and you, you're consistent. So I just trying to keep consistent and keep grinding and keep working on my craft. Hell yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned an immigration thing. And so you're Latinx from where though? I saw on one of your geese, you had chingona on, with a skull on it and the skull was in the Mexican flag colors. So you're Mexicana? Yes, Mexicana. My dad was born in Guanajuato, in uh, near Leon, Guanajuato. Okay. And my mom was born in Tijuana, but all her family is from Pueblo Nuevo, Guanajuato. So okay. they immigrated. To, my mom immigrated to Chicago as a child, and my dad immigrated as an undocumented immigrant when he was like in his teens, early 20s. Cool, cool. Yeah, so your first gen, mm-hmm. very cool. Mm-hmm. Putting in the work, putting in that work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so... As far as all the future stuff coming up, what are your social media plugs for the audience? And we'll make sure to link them to that as well. 
I'm very active on Instagram. I don't have a Twitter and um, because I just don't feel like I have the like mental space to have <laughs> too many a, social media. Twitter's a lot and writer Twitter is a lot, I tell you. <laughs> so on Instagram, um, I'm Chio, C-H-I-O underscore La, L-A underscore Chingona, C-H-I-N-G-O-N-A on Instagram. Rocio Franco, if I, they look for it too. Cool, very cool. We will direct everybody over to your Instagram so they can keep up with all the good stuff you got coming mm-hmm. out in the future. Hey, Rocio, thanks again. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for the opportunity. Oh, great. Good luck in the future. All right, y'all. Thanks for listening to that interview with Rocio Franco, poet out of Chicago, Illinois. If you want to keep up with her, and I believe you should because she's going places, go over to Instagram. Follow her at Chio underscore La underscore Chingona. Chio underscore La underscore Chingona. She has a reading on June 27th. Counterpult, a Roots, Wounds, Words Storyteller Showcase. And Rocio is featured along with some other BIPOC writers and storytellers, so that's a great event to support. Stay tuned next week. Next week, I got another writer on. I got another writer. Writer and editor, Colby Applegate. He's an editor of Ring Post Journal, issue number one, a 2020 Women's Wrestling Year in Review. Good conversation with Colby. I got this journal in the mail. Very cool little magazine put together. Stay tuned for that one. As far as the podcast, you guys know the drill. Follow us on your favorite podcast app. Share it with your family and friends. Follow us on social media. Go over to the website for the episode guide, ridersandfighters.com. Every Sunday, a new episode. All right, y'all. Had fun with this one. Y'all be good. Be safe. Take care of each other. We'll talk next week.